Uh, I want to now introduce um, uh, my speaker and friend, Professor Michelle Belinsky, who is Director of Research at CNRS and the Econometrics Laboratory at the Ecole Polytechnique in Paris, and he's co-author with Professor Rita Laraki, who is uh, a researcher at CNRS and Professor also of Economics at the Economics Department at Ecole Polytechnique. And their forthcoming book, One Value, One Vote, Measuring, Electing, and Ranking, is forthcoming in 2009, and you'll hear uh, more about that. Um, And that's where the majority judgment theory of voting is actually uh, developed. So um, once again, I warmly invite you to, uh, to come and hear some of the fireworks tomorrow when alternative viewpoints and criticisms are, are, are laid down by the discussants of tomorrow night's event uh, and also on Friday when hopefully a kind of denouement as well as some new uh, uh, um, points where I think you're going to talk about properties on the, the, the main properties of it or is that tomorrow? The main properties tomorrow but one important property the la- all the language properties we're Exactly, exactly. On Friday, yep. plus, plus the yes. empirical evidence. Yes, so, yeah, um, and that's at 6 o'clock tomorrow at the Thai Theatre in the new academic building, and the same again on Friday. So now, without further ado, as they say, uh, Professor Belinsky. Thank Michelle. you, Rudy. Thank you very much, and uh, thank you for both, both of us for inviting us to be able to um, make our pitch about this theory that we've been working on for about five or six years now. And actually, I think it might be amusing to you to know how it all began, because we we organized a, uh, there's a French scientific American called Pour la Science, and they asked us in 2002 to prepare a a bunch of articles on the mathematics of voting, which uh, we did in time for the presidential election of 2002 in, in France. And a few months later, an, an analogist, wine expert, called me, and he said, uh, I'm, I work in wines, I organize wine competitions, and uh, I think our methods are very bad, and it seems to me that your methods, and at least the way you talk about all this, is, is really very interesting and uh, can I come and see you? And he came and he gave, us, gave me some whole bunch of data and we started talking. And then a few, it was maybe a year or two years later that Krida and I decided, well, let's study this wine problem. So this has really a, uh, if you wish, this is the way we, we started. Now, So here, the plan, first of all, excuse me, I just get used to this, is uh, then today's lecture. And here, today, the whole idea is to try to give a very general lecture so that there isn't any specialized knowledge assumed with, uh, and try to give the, the overall and the main ideas. Tomorrow, Rida will speak about the theoretical foundations and then again, I will speak on, on uh, 
Friday with the empirical evidence and also bring up certain issues concerning what we call common language, which I think is going to be a heavily debated subject. So our thesis is this. The traditional methods of voting do not work. They often fail to elect the candidates sought by the voters. And what is it based on? It's a very, very old idea. You can find traces back to 1299. And these premises are a faulty model of reality, and I hope that today I will convince you that this is the case with evidence. Now, there are two big problems. One is it leads to an inconsistent theory. First, because real, unacceptable paradoxes are unavoidable. This is arrows and possibilities theorem, an incompatibility between winners and rankings, and there are lots of other paradoxes, some of which I will describe, but I'll just state with the main ones. So our question is, so why do we go on with this model? And that, in fact, the only way out is not to study the old model, but to look at another model. We say that a more realistic conception of how voters, or if it's in judging wines, how judges, imagine their preferences, their preferences being their likes, their dislikes, if you're economists, their utilities, leads to a new model, a new theory, and a new method of voting. We have tested it in voting, in committee decisions it has been tested, and in wine competitions. We claim it is natural, simple, robust, avoids the unacceptable paradoxes, resists gaming, that is, is robust against trying to exaggerate or cheat in some sense, and we claim it is the best of all methods known today for choosing a winner and an order of finish, because it comes closest to meeting all of the criteria that one would wish to meet. So what is the fundamental problem? The fundamental problem is simply that, it's a notion, what do we want? What is a voting system? Everybody votes, and then society comes out with a decision. So there's the inputs to the problem, or the messages we send, which is what the voting system allows us to do. Now in England, what are you allowed to do? You vote for one person, unless it's for the mayor of London, if I recall, where I think you can vote for two. But say in the U.S., for U.S. presidential elections, or any of the elections almost, you vote for just one person that is on your list. So those are the messages. There are some countries, Australia, your input is an ordered list. Now theoretically, the traditional model of social choice does what? It takes what it calls the voters' preferences, and wants to amalgamate this into society's preferences. But what is meant by this? What is meant is, 
And the way all of the theory is driven is to say voters have rank orderings, and from that we want to get society's rank ordering. As I said before, this leads to serious inconsistencies. But secondly, it is unrealistic. Voters do not have candidates in their minds. Neither do judges of skating and all the other competitive situations which are like the same sort of problem. They don't have orders in their minds. Orders are much too difficult to make. We can give you, there will be proof from voting, the voting experiment that we've done, which we'll give you. But one can even also give other proofs from the point of view of the kinds of rules that were adopted, for example, in skating in the past. Now, what is our view? Again, it's the same basic problems, inputs, outputs. Inputs are messages. Outputs are decisions. But in the new model, we don't ask for preferences. We ask for evaluations. So we'll take individual evaluations instead of individual votes to be transformed into society's evaluations. By which we mean what? Each voter will give grades to all the candidates. From that will be deduced society's grades, and the society's grades will decide the rank ordering of the candidates. This leads to a consistent theory. Second, it is a much more realistic vision of what voters and judges have in mind. So now, here's the outline of the talk. First, I'll talk about tradition, theory, and practice, and then we'll go on to the majority judgment. So, again, traditionally a voter's input is assumed to be a list ordered from best to worst. This started with Raman Lul in 1299, whose great hope he had seen, recognized this idea before Condorcet, although now it is known as the Condorcet winner, that he was looking for a candidate who would beat every possible opponent face-to-face. And failing that, then he wanted to take the winner as the one who defeated the others most often. But, of course, this notion of a Condorcet winner, that is, a candidate who beats every possible opponent face-to-face, does not necessarily exist. And here is an example. Now, look, I'm going to give you some baby examples for the concepts. As soon as we pass the concept, then we're going to come and see why each of these ideas is an important practical idea. So what this is saying is the following. There are 30% of the population prefers A to B to C. Now, remember, we're talking about the old model, so everybody's input is a list. 32% prefer B to C to A, and 38% prefer C to A to B. Now, another way of looking at this from the point of view of face-to-face results, it would mean that, for example, in the row of A, A against A, of course, we have no score, but what is A's score against B? Well, there's 30% that prefer A to B in the first column, and there's 38% that prefer A to B in the last column, and middle column, B is preferred to A. So 68% 
prefer A to B, and so on for the rest of this table. So now what do we see here? If we look at this, we see that there is no one candidate who defeats every other one. A can defeat B, but not C. So A defeats B, if you wish. B defeats C with 62%, and C defeats A. So we have what is called a Condorcet cycle. This is the famous Condorcet paradox. So what this is saying, it's saying if we're doing this face-to-face business, well, we just may not have a winner. There's no way of designating a winner, perhaps. And yet this is one of the ideas that has driven the area of social choice all the time, this notion of trying to find methods that will, whenever possible, choose this candidate. Now the other big, well-known method, and there are only two more methods, all of them most will be familiar to you, maybe this one is not, was in fact proposed in 1433 by Nicholas Cusanos. He proposed what is now known as Borda's method, which came in fact later. And Borda's idea, and here I'm taking the same example, was this. We'll look at the list, and every time a candidate is listed first, if there are three candidates, he will be given two points. Every time he's listed second, he will give you one, and every time he's listed last, he'll be given zero. So if there were ten candidates, you'd start with a nine, then you'd go to eight, seven, and so on. And then you compute each candidate's Borda score. Well, A's Borda score will be 60 plus 38. Why? Well, 30% prefer A to B. Sorry, 30% say A is in first place. So there are 60 points from there. In the second column, A gets zero points. In the last column, it gets 38 points, so A gets 98 points. And now you see that according to Borda, that means that the Borda ranking is CAB. And there's another way of looking at this. I come back to that same matrix below of who beats whom, and all you do to get A's score is make the sum across the row. 68 plus 30 is 98, 32 plus 62 is 94, and so on. And of course, you get the same thing. So this is Borda's method. This is still talked about and very much pushed. It's actually used to rank Texas marching bands in their competitions today. It's not much used in other situations. Now, what has happened in the U.K. and the U.S.A.? Well, a voter, it's so-called first past the post. A voter names one candidate. That's the input. The candidate most often name is elected. That's the output. In France, we've called this, we call this two past the post. Again, a voter names one candidate. If one candidate is named by more than 50% of the voters, he or she is elected. Otherwise, there's a runoff between the two candidates most often named. Now, 
first thing I want to show you that there's, you know, there's the problems. Because each of these methods, you might say, well, because they're used or they've been proposed, but they can give different answers. Here is an example essentially due to, I've just transformed the numbers slightly, but it's Borda's example, where translated into percentages, so you know what that means. So you see here A beats B, A against B gets 38% of the vote, A against C gets 38%, B against A gets 62% and so on. So what happens with first past the post? Well, first past the post is what? Who gets the most votes the first time around? Well, A would get 5 plus 33 or 38%, B would get 34, C would get 28. So A wins. And the order according to this would be A, B, C. What does 2 pass the post to? Well, nobody got a majority the first time around. So who is dropped out? I mean, who is kept in? The top two candidates, C got least, is dropped out. Therefore, it's a race between B and A. B beats A with 62%. So B wins in this case. Now, what does Borda say? Borda says, well, we have to compute the Borda scores, make the sums in the rows, and what do we find there? C beats B beats A. Now, that's one aspect of the problem. Second aspect of the problem is all of these systems are manipulable in the following sense. Now, obviously, this is a toy problem, but we'll see that all of this has real counterparts. Suppose we were voting with first past the post. Now, look at the 28%. A was elected. They are very unhappy. Obviously, they'd like to have C, but they'd certainly prefer to have B than A. So if they were to cheat and reverse B and C, they could change the outcome and make B win. Now, suppose it was two past the post. Well, <clears throat> what happens? Uh, if, in this case, the 33%, again, I mean, who is elected in the two past the post? B. So the 33% is very unhappy. Had they voted differently by switching A and C, C would be the winner. And finally, if we're using the border system we're used, well, we get the same thing. I won't go through the, well, I'll say what happens in this case. We take the 28%. Uh, C was elected. Whoops. Uh, am I right? Wait a minute now. See, Lord, I, I made a mistake. Excuse me. So we'll pass on. I, I, my first instinct was right. Uh, one of those things works. Excuse me. I, I, uh... All right. Now, second problem is the so-called arrow paradox. Again, this is exactly the same system, exactly the same problem. We look at these three systems, and arrow's paradox is this. If we're using first past the post, and 
C. C didn't win, right? A won. But C drops out. What's the effect on first past the post? The winner changes. So the presence or absence of a candidate, of another candidate, affects who is the winner. Incidentally, this happened in skating, in uh, figure skating. You would have uh, Rudy and I were competing. Rudy was first, I was second. Rida performs, and what happens? Rida is still fourth, but all of a sudden he's second and I'm first, and we haven't performed either of us. That's Arrow's paradox. That's what's happening here. Now, the same thing happens with two past the post. If with two past the post, A, in this case, is Lua, right? B was the winner. Suppose A loses, then C wins. So again, just the presence or absence of somebody changes things. Now, this also happens with a border system, but I need, we need another example for it. Here's an example of it. The border's ranking, again, you know, just add the rows, the figures in A's, B's, and C's rows. Clearly, A has the highest total, then B, then C, so B is the border winner. A is the border winner, excuse me. Yet, first of all, Border winner is not a Condorcet winner, and there is a Condorcet winner because B beats A and B beats C. Yet Border chooses an, someone, another candidate. But if C drops out, what happens? B becomes the winner. Now, all of this is unavoidable because, in the context of the traditional model, a reasonable method should guarantee the following three points. First, voters should be permitted to list candidates in any order they wish. Second, when a candidate is first on each voter's list, then that candidate should be the winner. Third, a winner should not change because of some irrelevant candidate who either decides to run or doesn't decide to run. This is Arrow's so-called famous independence of irrelevant alternatives condition. And if you ask for these three conditions, then Arrow's theorem says there isn't any method that you can find that satisfies them. Conclusion, the traditional model yields neither an acceptable theory nor an acceptable method. Now, these things are real. George Bush was elected in 2000 with 271 electoral votes to 276 for Albert Gore. In Florida, here were the total official votes, a difference of some 500 votes. Ralph Nader had 97,000 votes. It's quite clear that if ceteris paribus in the sense that, uh, you know, if they were not other further cheating and stuffing boxes and all that kind of things, uh, all that type of thing, then most of the people who had voted for Ralph Nader would have voted for Gore rather than Bush. And in that case, this would have been the Electoral College vote. So the here is a real instance of Arrow's paradox. That is, again, 
a candidate's presence, having no chance of winning whatsoever in the case of Ralph Nader, changed the outcome of the election. This obviously also occurs in many British elections because you have most often at least three, if not more, candidates in the parliamentary elections at least. And now, you know, one must raise the question, and this is what Rudy was addressing at the very beginning. Do we elect the people we wish? Well, the 2002 French presidential elections are absolutely a beautiful example of what can go wrong. There were 16 candidates. Here are all the candidates. The only one who is not a candidate on this list was Pasqua. All the others were candidates, and those were the percentages of votes they got. Now, Chirac, of course, was the standing president. Le Pen, far right. Jospin, the standing prime minister, representing the socialists, main part of the socialists. Chirac, the main legitimate right. Chevènement, strange character in many ways, but erstwhile socialist. Presumably, had he not been there, his votes, or a good proportion of his votes, would have gone to Jospin. That would have enabled what everybody was waiting for, which was a competition between Jospin and Chirac in the second round. More to the point, almost, though, was Taubira, who was a socialist, who ran, who offered to withdraw if her expenses would be paid by the Socialist Party, which refused. And I have been told by various people who I think should know that independent people who told me that, I mean, independent from each other, that, in fact, Chirac supported her campaign. So what is... So, okay. So, now, first thing, here is what the result was. 82% for Chirac and 18% for Le Pen. Now, had Chevènement or Taubira withdrawn, then it seems quite clear that the contest would have been between Chirac and Jospin. Polls indicated probably Jospin would have won. Of course, you can never know what will happen on election day. But Pasqua is in this list because he was of Chirac's party, and he had announced he would run, and then didn't. Now, was it because he couldn't? I don't know. At least he didn't. But had he run, he might well have taken enough votes away from Chirac so that the two candidates who were left would have been Jospin and Le Pen. And, of course, Jospin would have crushed Le Pen just as much as Chirac crushed Le Pen. So here, what do we have? We have arrow paradoxes and strategic manipulation galore. I mean, it's all over the place. And who, you know, who was really the winner? I mean, who should have been the winner? Well, we don't know. But I think that the example is a beautiful example to show what the deficiencies of this voting system are. Now, 
The 2007 French presidential election gives us again fodder for this. First of all, in response to what had happened in 2002, which was a real shock in France, 30% of the French voters did not vote for their first choices. They voted strategically. One of the evidences for this is that minor candidates of the left obtained 27% of the vote in 2002, but 11% in 2007. Same sort of phenomenon on the right. Here are the first round results with the two leading candidates, Sarkozy and Royal, who then went into the runoff, and Sarkozy won with 53% of the vote. However, there was a second round and poll in which the poll tried to estimate what would a race between each of the, these pairs be. What would it be between Bayrou and Le Pen? What would it be between Royal and Bayrou and so on? And here are the figures. And this has been confirmed. These numbers, I mean, within 4 or 5%, which is plenty in this case, have been confirmed in many different findings. Uh, and what do we see? Well, first of all, uh, that Bayrou is the Condorcet winner. In fact, he's also the border winner in this case, but I'll come, I guess I'll make a list of that in a second. But, you know, what is the explanation for this? The explanation is that among the royal voters, most would vote for Baihu against Sarkozy, and among the same thing, symmetrically, uh, among the Sarkozy voters. So, but in, thus, in two by twos, Baihu was the very, very strong Condorcet winner. So what do we find? Baihu is the Condorcet winner and the border winner. Sarkozy was the first past the post winner and the two past the post winner. So who is society's real choice? Obviously we don't know. And so now I come to what we propose. We ran an experiment in the 2007 election where uh, this was carried out in three voting bureaus in Orsay, which is a small town next to Paris, uh, where, well, I'll give you the, uh, I'll give you the, uh, the statistics of all this in a moment. Here are, here is the ballot that they were given. Now, there are numbers of things to say. First of all, there is a solemn question posed. We believe this is very important, that it be a, there's a question, should be solemn, should people put people in front of their responsibilities. To be president of France, having taken into account all considerations, I judge in conscience that this candidate would be. And now the voter was asked to grade, evaluate each candidate. The list of candidates the way they're listed is according, that this was the official listing, because there is always an official listing in France is done in a random manner once the candidates are determined. So with the, that's, that's the way it was given. Now, as you see at the bottom, it is said, check one single grade in the line of each candidate, and if nobody, no line, no check in 
is found in a row, that meant that the voter rejected the candidate. Now, there are various reasons for doing this, but I would say the main reason is simply, well, if the voter didn't take the trouble to find out who that candidate was to be able to evaluate him, then it's tantamount to saying he should be rejected. We can give other justifications, but I think that's the main one. So this new point of view, voters do not vote, they judge. And they judge in what we are calling a common language of grades. If I come back to this, excellent, very good, good, acceptable, poor are translations of words that every French school child knows. They are used in schools. So there's a sense of what this means. And we were hunting for words that would be common and used in a common way by all the voters, and we will show you that statistically we have been able to demonstrate that this is exactly what happened. Now, observation. With 12 candidates, the first-past-the-post system allows a voter how many possibilities, how many messages, different messages? Thirteen. Voting for one of the 12 or voting for none? Now, if you have two rounds, then you get 13 at the first round and three possibilities in the second. You vote for one candidate, the other candidate, or you don't vote. So if you wish, there are 30, 13, or 39, depending on the system you use, possible messages. But with a majority judgment, with a common language of six grades, how many possibilities are there? Well, there are six times six times six, 12 times. That is over two billion different possible messages. This is one hell of a lot of information that you're allowed to choose from as you give your evaluation. So the notion is that voters can really express their opinions, and in our experiment, voters really did express their appreciation for this. Then, I'm going overall, a candidate's set of grades determines his or her majority grade. That is the final grade which is conferred upon the candidate by the electorate. And then they are ranked according to their majority grades. Now, immediate consequence of this is that Arrow's paradox cannot arise because grades are attached to candidates. So some candidates withdraws or comes in and shouldn't change the grades of the other candidates. Now, I've said this. It is important to pose a clear and solemn question. We believe that by and large people try to answer the question posed, and I think we can actually give you evidence for that too. A common language here in this theory is essential. Otherwise, if you don't have it, then we can't say that the system is going to work. In our theory, quite explicitly, Arrow's impossibility theorem says, without a common language, there can be no consistent collective decision. Incidentally, without a common language, it's very difficult to believe that a 
Chinese president and an American president can come to any collective decision either. Now, common languages do exist in practice. We've observed it. You look at diving competition, gymnastic competition, figure skating competition, wine competitions, students' grades, all kinds of things. I'll give you still further examples later on. These things exist. And they are used, and, and the way they are used, people mean the same things by them. Now, incidentally, of course, there's a big philosophical issue, which I think we're going to get into this uh, mainly on Friday because we're going to have things to say about it there. But, you know, all language, of course, is imperfect. I say green. I don't know what he's imagining exactly as the green. There are a lot of different greens. And so I say excellent, and he says excellent. Well, there may be some differences, but the question, you know, the question is, how much of a difference is there? And we'll see that, in fact, there is a great commonality um, in their usage. As is said here, the words used in the French experiments constitute, for France, a common language. We have proven this by extensive statistical analyses, some of which we'll give, but certainly not all, because there's a lot of it, and it takes a long time to explain. Okay. Now... <coughs> We've got to get the candidate's majority grade. It is the middlemost or median of his or her grades. That is, if I take this example, 8% excellent, 20% very good, and so on, then a majority of voters have assigned the candidate at least this grade. That is, in this case, this candidate's grade is good. 58% of the voters assigned at least a good. Same time, 69% at most good. So that's, we call that the majority decision, the majority grade. Now, I'm not going to, Rida tomorrow will go into much more detail on this and give you more specific uh, result, but, uh, results concerning these, these conclusions. But <clears throat> notice right away that the majority grade, the notion, already combats strategic voting. For suppose that either a voter or block of voters looked at this candidate and judged this candidate very good. Now, you know, your first reaction, I mean, so you're a voter. Here's this candidate. I said this candidate was worth a very good. The result was good. I was an ass. I should have given him an excellent because maybe I could have pushed his grade up. Right? You're disappointed because he only got a good. I thought he was very good. So I should have exaggerated, pushed it up to an excellent, then it would have been higher. But that's not possible here because, uh, look, so I'll stay there. Why is it impossible? Well, because if you push very good up to excellent, it doesn't change. I mean, the sum of 8 plus 23 plus 27 changes stays the same. If you voted very good in this situation, the only way you could make a change is to, wor is to go below good. But that's presumably not what you want. And of course, this is true from the other side. Suppose a voter or block of voters judge this candidate acceptable. Well, again, you say, damn it, 
Kennedy got too much. I should have graded lower. But that doesn't change anything. So it is what we call strategy proof in grading. In grading. Another property is, of course, that if a majority gives, say, very good to a candidate, then, of course, that must be the candidate's majority grade, right? Because it'll have to be in the middle. It has to encompass the middle if you've got a majority there. And, again, these results will be uh, enlarged and explained in more detail. Uh, the majority grade uniquely satisfies these and, and, and other properties. Now, let's come back to the experiment. As I said, it was in three of Offset's voting bureaus. These were not representative of France, so it's no pretension of representing anything here. Uh, people were well, there was a lot of publicity ahead of time, uh, explanations, there was a meeting, and so on. And after casting, people would come in one side of the room, voting room, they would vote officially, and we were a little further. Uh, then they would be invited uh, to come and vote with us. And the conditions were absolutely identical in the sense ballots filled out in booths, you know, curtains inserted in envelopes, deposited in transparent urns. 2,360 people voted officially, 1,752 participated, so we had 74% participation. Of those, 1,733 ballots were valid, and 1,705 were different. Now, actually, we're quite surprised that they were not all different. The, the results of the fact that some were the same was that a number of people put either excellent or very good for Sarkozy and reject for everyone else. There were a few of that. That was the type of tie there was. But, you know, as I said before, they, there were two billion possible, more than two billion possibilities here, so that, that they should, most should be different was not at all, uh, not at all a surprise. And here are the results. Now, outside of Maurice, and uh, Reda, who knows, of course, uh, we said, we've tried this on French voters, on French people of type, various types. Who are the blanks? Well, uh, anybody here who wants to play the game? <laughs> Sorry? Yes. Okay, go on. Who is the last? He was a centrist candidate and appreciated centrist candidate. Do you want to go on? Who's the last? The last should be easy. Le Pen. Le Pen, of course. Look at look at the number of rejections. Incidentally, the blanks were counted as rejections. So really, it's the sum of those two are to reject. But we just wanted to show. So you could see how many how many blanks there were. So the blanks were not very high. 
Le Pen was clearly the last. Well, who is the, who is the one just above Juanet? Who would he? Right. Now, why? Well, look, he has a lot of excellence in comparison. He, he, if, you know, from the point of view of looking at these figures, you'd say if it was first past the post, Sarkozy would be elected, right? If you want to put it that way. But, I mean, he got the most excellence, but he also got a lot of rejects. And that, that, that is exactly who, who these candidates were. And as I say, anybody who really was looking at France uh, almost immediately got that. We believe this is, shows that, you know, this in, there's something real in this information. There, this, is, this is very comforting in some sense. Now, the red indicates the majority. Great. Now, let's uh, note, note right away that we have a problem here. By who? Royal and Sarkozy are all good? So who's ahead of whom? Uh, the same we have with Besançonon down to La Laguillet. They're all poors, and, and the rejects also. Here before, how do we how do we rank them? Well, we rank them with what we call the majority gauge, and this concept <coughs> is deduced from the theory. Uh, and is should be enough to for any big election to be able to make a complete list without ties. And the idea is this. By who is a good plus? Because the percentage of grades higher than good plus is 44.3%. You see 13 plus 0.6 plus 30.7 is uh, that's right yeah, 44.3 okay so the percentage higher is 44.3% the percentage lower is 30.6% the fact that the higher is bigger than the lower 44 is higher than 30 means that it's a good plus that is why Royal is a good minus because her lower is greater than her high. Okay? So that a good minus. Now, what do you do when there are two good minuses? You look at the bad side, and whoever is worse is, is last. So, as I look at Royal and Sarkozy, Sarkozy has more that are lower than the majority grade than does Royal, therefore he goes behind her. If you look at two pluses, what do you do? The opposite. Look at Besançonon and Dufay. They're both pluses. Who has the most weight on the plus side? Besançonon, therefore he goes, he is ahead of Dufay. And that's the scheme. And it's quite clear that when you have a lot of voters, this, I mean, it's, it's, it's almost impossible to get a tie. Theorem. <coughs> This agrees with the majority ranking, which we will define in detail tomorrow, uh, which is derived from theory. Uh, in, that is, uh, this is not a f as fine a distinction as you get out of the whole theory, but 
This is implied by it. What else? Okay. Now, let's look at strategy. Who is first? By who was first? Royal was second. Could strategic voting have made Royal the winner? So here are their grades. Uh, here are their majority gauges. By who, 44.3, good plus, 30.6, etc. And the question is, how could a voter who graded Royal above by who manipulate? Well, by lowering Bayou's majority gauge and raising Royale's. I mean, that's the only, you know, that's the only thing you can do, right? Now look, among voters who rated Royale above Bayou, uh, one who can lower Bayou's majority gauge cannot raise Royale's. Why? Well, look. If they preferred Royal to Baihu, their grade was higher, right? So where could these grades be? They could both be below good, or they could straddle, or they could be above. Now, what what can you do? Well, suppose uh, you already gave uh, Royal something above good, and you already gave Bayou something below good. What can you do? You can't do anything. Because if you're already below good and you go further down, you're below good for Bayou and you go further down, the 30.6 doesn't change. And if you're above good for Royal and it's 39.4, then that doesn't change either. So that doesn't change at all. So the only things that are going to happen is if you are, say, above good in two cases or below good in two cases, if you're above good in two cases, then uh, you can lower by who, but you cannot raise Wayat. Same thing is true below. No method is completely strategy-proof in ranking. That is, you, there's no method whereby you cannot cheat in order to try to and, and get some success. But this scheme is par- par- partially strategy-proof in ranking in the sense that if you can raise somebody, you can't lower the other person, and vice versa. And in fact, there are lots of other reasons but uh, to say why it is robust against strategic voting and of course uh, as no method is strategy proof in ranking one can look at these ballots and ask can exaggeration change the outcome and the answer is yes if many voters do manipulate it but if only some 30% of those did who could do so and that is what the estimate of the polls that, that, as I mentioned before, that 30% of the voters cast votes not in accordance with their convictions, then we can show with examples that they would not have been able to change the outcome. That is, it takes a lot more to change outcomes with this method than with other methods. We will give you more statistical evidence for this later on.
Okay. Grades in practice, again, practical people do use measures of grades. And they are well-defined. I will give you some examples on Friday. Absolute common languages of evaluation to to define decision mechanisms. It's used in figure skating, sports, diving, gymnastics, piano, flute, orchestra competitions, wines, students, hotels, stars. That's a common language. Indeed, the decision mechanism used to operate markets itself uses a measure. Let's not forget it. A lot of economists around here. Uh, It's money. Money plays the the role of language in the economy. Language plays the role of money in this new theory of social choice. We rejected the usual 0 to 20, or it could be 0 to 100, whatever, French grades, for lots of reasons. The first, the language is not natural, but numerical, so it's abstract. Secondly, it may very well not define a common language in a large electorate. And, for example, in France, if you look at a 15 or a 16 in mathematics is very good, but it is absolutely incredibly good in philosophy, so it's not common. It contains many levels, which makes it more difficult to become. I mean, so how, what's the difference between 11 and 12? What does it mean? If you're going to give it 11 or a 12, it's got to have some meaning to it. Furthermore, uh, well, all right, words carry greater meaning than, than numbers. And furthermore, when a numerical scale is used, voters will immediately assume the scores are summed. And that's a in clear invitation to manipulate. If you're grading on a zero to a hundred basis, and you, you have a slight preference for some candidate, but you think he's very mediocre nevertheless, what are you going to do if you're sophisticated? Well, you give him 100, 100 points and give zero to the O. That's the invitation with numbers. But more fundamentally, what the hell does it mean to add numbers? What does it mean? Well, there's a whole theory of measurement that has been developed in the last 40, 50 years. And uh, in order for sums of numbers in measures to mean anything, they have to be what is called an interval measure, like inches or pounds. Uh, where you can add. Adding makes sense. But it doesn't make sense in many other circumstances. And in order to be an interval measure, in these cases, uh, well, (laughs) it's quite clear that it isn't. You can't achieve whatever you want. We'll talk about this on Friday. Now, interesting point. um, How were the grades used? Now, I'm going going to the behavior. First of all, The the number, the percentage of ballots with one grade was 1%. 10% of the ballots had three grades, different grades, used three different grades. 31% used four different grades. And you see, as you get to six, it already is tailed off. So somehow, six was not a bad number. I mean, we were 
lucky, I would say, on this. Furthermore, I'm going to give you, this is just raw data. We have much more detailed data than this. But look at the, in red, this is the average number of excellence per ballot over the three, the whole experiment. So you see, excellence were used sparingly. Very goods, average 1.3. The sum here is 12, because there were 12 uh, grades per ballot. But now look at the first precinct, the distribution of the first precinct, the sixth, the twelfth. They're almost the same. Now we take samples of 100. Look at what happens there. It's the same. Take disjoint samples of 50. You get, again, approximately the same. People are using the language in the same way. And yet, the majority judgment winner was not the same in all precincts. So although they used language in the same way, they elected people differently. Now, this experiment also, I think, we think, gave us a proof that the traditional model is not realistic. 11% of the ballot had at least two excellence. 16% at least two very goods and no excellent. 6% at least two goods and nothing better. What does this mean altogether? At least one-third of the voters expressed no single preferred candidate. Yet practically every single electoral system forces you to name a candidate first, or only one. But look, a third of the people don't want to do it. Why force them? That's not their opinions. Furthermore, a same, you know, why is, why ranking? A same ranking may carry very different meanings. You'll see one of the effects of this in a moment. By who was very often second? But so, but what does this second mean? Was it a high second or was it a low second? Often a centrist candidate is a low second, but gets elected by many, by many methods. You'll see this in a moment. But look at the distribution of the highest, second highest, and third highest grades. The highest grade, 52% were excellent, 37% very good, 9% and so on. And then the second highest, that's an entirely different distribution. Third highest, entirely different. So this business of rank ordering just throws away all kinds of possible information, or doesn't incorporate. So the input messages that our voters rank orders are, in our opinion, meaningless. Now, I'm almost finished. From 1,733 ballots, we were able to deduce a left-right political spectrum by numerical procedures along which all 12 candidates could be placed with Bayrou coming out as the unique candidate at the center. Now, the principal candidates were always, uh, obviously, were Bayrou, Royal, and Sarkozy. And with every, we, we have done a lot of um, uh, so-called um, bootstrapping. That is, we have this database of 1,733 ballots, so I'll describe it in a moment. But you can start taking samples out of this and studying the behavior. And uh, Always, they are the first three. There's no exception to this throughout all of the experiments we conducted in these 
in these experiments here. Now, what I'll describe to you is just a very limited piece of this and tying it more to the something that is representative of the national vote because it seems more, um, uh, it communicates more. From the 1,733, we found a, we, took a, we did some sampling to try to find a set of 501 that would be about representative of all of France. And then afterwards, from these 501, we took out samples of 101 many times to see what happens with the different methods. So 10,000 samples of 101 among only the three candidates. So we forgot about the nine others. Okay? And look, what happens with first past the post, two past the post? Well, majority judgment, the Condorcet winner, the Border winner, and point summing. Point summing, we would do the following thing. If there were uh, three candidates, we give a two, one, zero. If, no? Oh, excuse me, it's great. Yeah, that's right, excuse me. <laughs> Excellent was a five, uh, very good was a four, and so on down to zero. Uh, I'm sorry. Okay, here, here are the results, and I would feel that these are extremely interesting results. First of all, uh, here, by who is the centrist candidate? And you'll see that Borda and the point summing methods are extremely favorable to the, to the uh, centrist candidate. Whereas first past the post, two past the post are very unfavorable to the, to the uh, centrist candidate. Majority judgment is somewhere in between. Now we did the same thing, exactly the same thing, but now instead of three candidates, we took all 12. Now these numbers are about, or excuse me, I should explain something. First past the post, uh, the, well, a tie there is quite clear, okay? Two past the post, ties are quite clear there also. What does it mean to have a tie in the majority judgment? That means the majority gauge, uh, not the full scheme, because the full scheme, uh, you, uh, you only get two candidates tied if they have exactly the same set of grades. Otherwise, there's a difference. So uh, that's what ties me, tie means. And the cycle means this is, out of the 10,000 samples, there were 387 paradoxes, Condorcet paradoxes. Now here's among all 12. As you see, you get about the same thing, except for Borda. And look at Borda, almost certainly elects the centrist candidate, for the reason that we've already seen in some sense, because he's second or third out of 12 most of the time. So, I mean, his score just soars with respect to the others. And that shows what the problem with rank ordering is, because maybe he's not held in that high esteem, but because you could only put down a list, he's up high on the list, and so he gets lots of points. And so, as you notice, Borda explodes from 7,000 up to almost every time.
conclusion first and two past the post presumably unduly i don't know how to you know that's a parentheses penalize the centrist the others favor the centrist now manipulability now we're going to do i thought i'd change that uh no okay sorry uh edit and i thought i changed it Well, okay, I think that uh, this is an error, and it was 10,000 random samples of 101 from the 501 representatives, okay? So here's the scheme. Here's the, here's the experiment. We take 10,000 random samples. Given that, there is a unique winner and a unique runner-up, and if there isn't a unique winner, and uni then we throw it away until we get 10,000, Okay. Then, all those voters who gave a grade to B, at least two levels above the grade given to A, change to give B the highest possible, to give B the highest possible grade and A the lowest possible grade given whatever the scheme is. Okay, that's if a ballot gives very good to B and good to A, no change is made. There's not enough um, desire to, you know, make a make a change is not the motivation to change your evaluation. But if it's very good and acceptable, or worse to A, then the change is made. And how many? So we counted. What are the number of successful strategic manipulations where B becomes the winner instead of A? Well, with point summing, almost all the time. Same with first past the post. Border very often. Condorcet is an interesting case because if, look, if A is above B, uh, then all those who voted for A above B will not change. So uh, it's, it's the only possibility that something happens is that those, there's some voters in B uh, who, well, let's see, I'm to say this right. If A beats B by Condorcet, that means A has majority over B, right? The majority already thinks A is above B. So, uh, now we're going to ask. Uh, all voters who gave it be two levels above A change. By, all right, here's the point. Those who go below A may do what? As they go below A, they may choose another candidate. And that other candidate may then become the winner. So, in fact, what will this cause? This will cause a Condorcet cycle. So, here is a very important point that these Condorcet paradoxes can be forced by strategic voting. And in this, this is the only case in this, I mean, all of these instances, these 5,140 instances, 
are because a paradox is forced. And as you see, the majority judgment is last. Finished. Conclusions. Hart Crane, in a letter to Harriet Monroe, his editor, defending the images he said, he used in his poetry, said the following thing. Hasn't it ever occurred that instruments originally invented for record and computation have inadvertently so extended the concepts of the entity they were invented to measure, space, et cetera, in the mind and imagination that employed them, that they may metaphorically be said to have extended the original boundaries of the entity measured? The concept of voting by comparing has not only extended beyond the boundaries of its intent, it has prevented the invention of new conceptions. So to finish, we say the majority judgment is a simple voting system that enjoys the following properties. It ranks candidates according to merit. It is natural. It resists strategic manipulation. It allows voters a real expression of opinion. It heeds majority rule. It is not subject to Arrow's paradox. It is monotonic and unanimous. Some of you know what this means. The properties proven in theory are verified in practical experience. Therefore, as Richard Feynman once said, during the Middle Ages, there were all kinds of crazy ideas, such as that a piece of rhinoceros horn would increase potency. Then a method was discovered for separating the ideas, which was to try one and see if it worked, and if it didn't, to eliminate it. This method became organized, of course, into science. We say the time has come to discard the traditional model and replace it with a more realistic one. And it is, we believe, a method that feels right even without the mathematical arguments that show it dominates every known method of voting so far. And, well, here are references. Excuse me, I think I went over a bit. That's okay. Started late. So a little applause for our speakers. It's seven minutes to eight. We traditionally, of course, have questions of the speaker, and we will take those and allow, you know, just seeing how it goes. We don't want it to run much over sort of ten past quarter past eight. Over here, please. And, by the way, could all speakers clearly give their name and affiliation and then ask the question? Christian Michel. I'm just a citizen and voter occasionally. I thought your method was very clever, but whilst it may solve the questions that you raised of paradoxes and strategic on the voters' part, will it not change the strategy of campaigns? Because what you show quite clearly is that in order to win with your method, you have to be the blandest possible candidate, the one that doesn't ruffle feathers, the one that doesn't need to attract a very active and very passionate support, but the one that simply is in the sort of marais, in the middle of, you know, everybody, I mean, everything for everybody. So 
are we not going to have very, not only boring, as we have now, uh, electoral campaigns, but soporific ones? Well, uh, we, we, uh, this, of course, is, uh, people have brought this up, saying this is what's going to happen. You're always going to elect the centrist. You saw evidence here that that's not true. Now, but, but just, no, but, in order to well, look, I, I uh, rhetorically, uh, first of all, I will point out to you, when, as soon as an election is over, uh, uh, let me start again. Today, say in England or in France or in the United States, what is the point? The point today is a candidate wants to get a majority, comfortable, but that's all. The candidate is perfectly willing to throw a lot of people to the dogs because it doesn't harm him. Uh, look at Le Pen, who was the fourth candidate and has been a very important candidate in France in these last years, and yet he is detested by 75% of the population. Now, I say that's a danger which cannot be neglected. That too, Because if you only look at just the votes, uh, this is no measure, no reasonable measure of what the feelings of the electorate are. First point. Second point, I quite agree with you that uh, the uh, sense of an election will completely change. And what happens at the end of election today? Somebody gets elected with 51% of the vote and what does he say or she say first thing? I will represent the entire country. Well, by God, maybe he could say that or she could say that before and try to answer to the problems of the entire nation and impose himself or herself for the qualities they have or the qualities in themselves and their programs and, and so on and so forth. One of the interesting things here, here is that by who, in one of the three districts, he is the bland, uh, centrist, etc., etc., candidate, he was the Condorcet candidate in that precinct or in that bureau, but not the winner according to the majority judgment. He was second. So your criticism is intuitive, but it's wrong. That is, we have a proof that it's wrong in the sense that here was an actual bureau where the candidate was, a, you know, Condorcet would have favored much more this man candidate than does the majority judgment. And all we can do is look by comparisons. Lastly, I believe, and I think we believe, I, I think I can speak for both of us here, that no, this would be a very good thing for elections. Maybe people would really, candidates would try to impose themselves not for some popularity, polarity kind of notion, but with quality messages, with answers to problems, with imposing oneself as being really a good and excellent in the back, in the very, very back. No, sorry.
very back up. Uh, yes, my name is Paul Clifton. I'm here in a private capacity. Um, as far as the British electorate is concerned, I should think you'd be lucky if 10% of them understood this. And won't this undermine the validity of elections? And as soon as you get the popular press saying, we was robbed, our candidate had the most votes, um, people are, well, they're either going to get very cross or, or perhaps the opposite, get uh, increasingly disinterested. Well, that, look, um, because I don't, I, I cannot pretend to know the English electorate, All I, but we did make, do this experiment in France. Uh, this is exactly what the French people, what Parisians told us ahead of time. My God, this is much more, much too complicated. None of the voters will understand any of this. It's going to be a total failure. It was quite the contrary. Uh, we have uh, a lot of uh, television footage to prove this. Voters loved it. They spent a, you know, an average of a minute to two minutes voting. It was quick. They came out extremely happy with the idea that a candidate would have a final grade. They liked that enormously. Uh, no, I, uh, I disagree. And at least the one experiment we've done is not in accord with what, with what you say. It's not in England. It's in France. But uh, I don't believe that the French voters are any more intelligent than the English voters are. I beg pardon? The people who participated in the trial, firstly, it was a novelty, and they were the, you know, they, they'd been selected to participate in this uh, little experiment. Uh, and, and secondly, they knew it wouldn't have any impact. 75% of Look, every experiment that it doesn't have an impact, uh, you can make that criticism of. Of course. There's no, there's no way we can get around that. However, there were 75%. That's quite a big percentage, I would say. It's not saying, it's not as if we took some selective percentage out of the people who voted. So, uh, no, now, uh, okay, I, I, I don't know how else to answer that. Over here, please. Hang on, hang on. Sorry. The rock star. Sorry. <laughs> okay. uh, Paul Williams, Operational Research Group here at LSE. Um, I don't like proportional representation, but all the time you were speaking, I kept thinking, is this applicable to this system? And, I mean, just to follow up what the last speaker said, I mean, we've got the May elections coming up for the European Parliament. We use a system called the De Hunt system in this country. I suspect very, very few people, even in this room, understand it. But that's a subsidiary point. My main question is, um, to what extent is what you're saying applicable to proportional representation? I'm not sure it is. Uh, in its present form, it is not. All we're talking about at the moment is electing one person. So it's got nothing to do with proportional representation in that sense. I know what the don't system is. You always don't understand it. Uh, Andrew Smith, no, no affiliation. Um, Show you the obvious gaming method, and you know I love gaming methods in voting. It's part of why I vote. Um, is t if I'm if I'm a natural royal voter, and I would give her an excellent, and I would give n naturally I would give Beirut uh, a very good. I want to move Beirut down the rankings 
scale. So surely what I do is give him a, a reject. So therefore, his, the difference between his very good and below good uh, reduces, and therefore I push Royale up the ranking uh, scheme and uh, push by Ruud down. If I'm a Sarkozy voter, I do exactly the same. So surely, uh, with a couple of election cycles, we all get to game, and we, it, it happens just as much as with other systems. So surely, we still have the gaming opportunities here that we have in any other system. Uh, no. The, the reason is, first of all, you are making an assumption here. Your assumption is that as a voter, the only thing you care about is the rank ordering of the candidates or the winner. This we, uh, we maintain is probably – I'll give you a, a, an element of showing you why this is wrong as an assumption. That is, when you give grades – People, I think, actually care about the grades they give. We don't, you know, look, when somebody votes, we don't know what, what they have in mind. What, they, what is it they're seeking? What would please them most? I mean, do they want their candidate to win with 100% of the votes? Do they want their candidates with, to win with a small margin, a big margin? Do they want some other one to be very low? What, what do they want? We do not know what they want. None of us do. It's uh, in, in economic theory parliaments, this would be saying, we do not know what your utility function is. No idea. However, we strongly believe that people may care strongly about the grade that the candidate receives. Yes, they may care about the winner. But they may care as much or more or less about the grade that he receives, he or she receives. Fact. I take the French elections of 2007. We have colleagues, well-known economists, people who are very sophisticated about social choice theory, about voting, about everything else. They knew that by who was the Condorcet candidate, potentially the Condorcet winner, that he could win. They preferred Bayrou to Royal. They preferred Bayrou to Sarkozy. But what did they do? They often voted either for Sarkozy or Royal. Why? Totally irrational, if you take your point of view. Totally irrational. But that's what they did. It has something to do, perhaps, with their past history, their political feelings, their this and the, that, you know, this, that, and the other. But that's what they did. They told us. So, no. And incidentally, take France as a whole. It was quite clear to everybody in France that if Beirou got to the second round, he would be the winner. Well, look, uh, everybody who thought that Sarkozy, uh, sorry, that Royal would lose to Sarkozy should then have voted for Bayrou. So what you're saying is wrong. It's what you have in your mind. You might do it. The question is how many? 30% of the French voters after the debacle of 2002 when Le Pen got to the second round, 30, only 30% voted strategically. All the rest voted what their big preference was. 
But of course, of course they are. But, you know, here I am, a candidate. I'm going to say to you, listen, you tell me. I'm excellent. I'm excellent. The rest, they're all too rejected. Come on. If you're a sophisticated voter, you're going to listen to that? No. Moreover, even if you like, you know, even if you bore a candidate, you look at this candidate the way you look at all candidates. Do you think this candidate is very good? And again, uh, our experience here, look at how many excellence we get. They were very sparingly used. Same thing, incidentally, we did the same thing. We did a, a web experiment on the election in the United States. Uh, Obama was way ahead of everybody else. He didn't have all that many excellence. People even there were being, in view of the opposition, which was not uh, particularly wonderful. So, no, I don't believe what you're saying at all. Um, over here. Uh, David Makinson, Private Capacity. Uh, manipulation is something that one learns how to do, and one learns from experience what is possible, what is easy, and how to do it according to the me voting method made. So consequently, I think that to be able to judge the level of manipulability of uh, the majority system that you're recommending, you would have to run a number of tests over a period of time in serious elections, giving people the opportunity to learn how to manage the system to their advantage. Oh, I think you're, you're obviously right. I agree with you 100%. Uh, the, and it's not as if uh, we pretend that uh, tomorrow France is going to elect its presidents in this way. What has to happen, obviously, is that people get to learn something about how the system works, to see how it works, to, you know, to, to start getting confidence that this is doing something that we would wish to happen. Uh, but, uh, however, if you compare it to the other systems, if you compare it on the mathematical theory, then there's no question that this does a better job. Okay, two more questions, I think. Um, Charles, I own no affiliation, but hoping to study here next year. Um, are there any political processes that are interested in using the system at the moment that um, so, you're looking at? Very, very good question. We actually, uh, we were very, we had a great disappointment. There were um, local elections a year ago, and the Modem party, that's the new party that Baihu formed, uh, decided that they would do internal um, uh, primaries, thank you for the word, uh, internal primaries to choose their candidates. And somebody from the Lyon section called us and said, look, we've learned about your thing. We think this would be the best way for us to choose a candidate within house. Uh, and uh, we decided to use it. And the problem is that then, uh, for various local political reasons, uh, they ended up a, a few days before the scheduled election with one candidate. So our real experiment didn't uh, <laughs> take place. But there was, an, there was a definite interest. Um, 
I'm very interested that in all of your comparisons you didn't compare the system which is it seems to me most closely to uh, uh, allied with yours the system of acceptance voting essentially acceptance voting voting. when you ask approval voting approval voting essentially you've been asking the public Check all the names of people who are good or better, and nothing else counts. And if you do that, you get approximately the exact same result that you had. Well, no, you, you, uh, we've. This is this is called approval voting, and it's um, it. You can view approval voting in two ways. One way is to say this is a point summing method. That is, you you give one point to some, and you give zero to others. Or you could give one, equivalent would be one plus one to some and minus one to some. Now, just a second, please. Just a second. So that's one thing. It can also be viewed as being a specialization of our method, or if you wish, ours is a generalization of that. But in that case, the one, the, this, the tick, saying, I will tick this one off, has got to mean something. Today, it means nothing. It's just a tick. There's no sense of evaluation going on. Put another way, if people will evaluate in completely different ways. This is why we were against point-summing methods. Against 0 to 20, could have been 0 to 1, right? Just 0 and 1 instead of 0, 1, 2, up to 20. And now, we will address this problem, I guess, it's, I think it's Friday, will it? We will talk about approval voting and why it is a very, uh, as practiced, very doubtful in its conclusions because it depends very much on what a voter has in mind, as what this means when you give a tick. And the way it's been done There's a a society, the Social Choice and Welfare Society, that specializes in in these methods. And they have used approval voting, and they use it in this way. Take. And here, what the the gentleman here said, really, I mean, in the one experiment that was published, you could see that all of these voting theorists, yes, that's exactly what they did. They give just one vote to one and zero to the others. But... um, because there was no sense here of saying we're looking for an evaluation. The question is very important. The s- sense of giving a, 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 and having a common evaluation is very important. And when you do the system where you just give a tick, you have no idea. You know, you, your vote may be very intensive for. Rudy's maybe did the same thing, but he's very, very doubtful about this, but he's better than the other guy. So now you're adding apples and oranges, and I don't think it has any meaning. Last two questions. Brief, brief responses. Now, here, the, the girl with the aqua sweater. Hi, um, Megan Cox. I'm an undergrad at the LSE. Um, my question has to do with the campaign tactics. Do you see this as inspiring more attention towards negatives or positives in candidates? 
would the focus be on the opponent driving up a candidate's negatives and driving down his own or driving up his own positives and not worrying about the other candidate? Well, look, I think the point, it's clear. I don't know how to answer that question, frankly. What is clear is coming back to this question about electing a very centrist candidate who has no strong positions. That, I mean, look, what pays you is lots of high grades and few low grades. That's what you're looking for. Now, it's going to be whatever arguments you can find that are going to help you to get lots of good grades and few bad grades, and you want your opponents to get lots of bad grades and to get few good grades. So now, I mean, from that point of view, I would say it's probably neutral from the aspect of positive or negative. But I think it's very important, and I think the Le Pen example is extremely interesting in the sense that, yes, there are some candidates who vast numbers of people just do not want, and our present systems don't show this at all and don't take it into account. Last question here, please. Mark Birdwood, investor in conflict avoidance technologies. Taking up a point earlier, the methodology you described has the advantage that the individual voter feels he owns his vote to a higher degree than voters do today. But there are two categories of community that have to be educated, and I defy the process of education succeeding. One is journalists and television commentators. I simply do not believe they will be able to get this point over, however bright the journalists are. And the other is the legal community who will be recruited to resolve the disputes that will result from the adoption of this. Well, I guess I would say that, first of all, especially in the last couple of days, the journalistic media have been extremely interested and have run various stories on all of this because they find this new thing and this new method intriguing. So I don't think the journalists are the problem. Now, you say legal people. There I have a harder time knowing what to say to you. I can say that I have been involved with one former member of the French Supreme Constitutional Court and another constitutional lawyer over other issues having to do with voting. Both of them are extremely favorable for this method. But I have not had, and I would say old friends of mine in the United States who are lawyers have exactly the same reaction. No. Okay. I'd just like to exert the privilege of the chair for just one comment, and that is that for many, many people, the words condensate, deborder, and so on mean absolutely nothing, zero. 
One of the problems of anything in any discussion and debate like this is that you have no level playing field as far as the knowledge of the listener versus the knowledge of the people who've spent their whole time, and in some cases their whole lives, going over the runes of this stuff. Um, when you were taught to vote, it's a bit like when you were taught to speak, walk, or anything else. You're taught, go into the polling booth. It's in the United States. I remember as a kid being told that you kind of like, you could sweep this thing across and it would sort of, you know, you'd done a, 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 a complete ticket or something like that. And everything gave you a democratic a, a single lever. And then just, whoom, back it goes. Then you hear about the hanging chad, you know, that this is to blame for, you know, whatever, whatever the outcome uh, was. But generally speaking, I mean, the idea that you tick off the, your candidate your preferred candidate, stick it in the box, it's counted up, and so on. Okay, that seems to be sort of intuitive. If that produced the result, that would be absolutely fantastic. There would be nothing more to learn. It's only because, increasingly, people are skeptical and don't vote because they don't feel they're represented by the candidates that they feel that ought to be representing them. Okay, in the case of whenever you have Chirac, 80%... What does, that tell? what does that tell the country? This man has got a mandate, a total mandate, to steamroll anything. When in fact it's possible that he would have won, but what would, it, what would the difference have been if it had been 53-47? Or indeed if Jospin had been elected? It makes a big difference. And the or, case... Sorry? Or if he'd been elected with a passable to, to um, Well, I, I don't want to, as, as a sort of quasi-philosopher of language and the concepts of semanticity and the rest of it coming into this, I'm not so sort of, I'm not so clear about what it is that we have to, what it is that we have in terms of commonality of usage. I mean, I think that all has to be expanded and tonight isn't the place to do so. But I just wanted to say that, you know, the refreshing thing about this is that it's actually extremely difficult um, yet it's very simple to cast a vote. If you'd just gone into a booth and somebody said to you, look, you're, you're going to have six candidates up there, just like a you know, local, the, the, the raving loony party, the Labour party, the whatever party, and you've got six candidates in front of you. And instead of ticking off just your choice, you're supposed to fill in the boxes and give them each a grade. Okay? I mean, that's, that's the general idea. Grade them. Report card type. Okay? You don't know two or three of them, or you don't care. Reject them. If you can be bothered to take it off, or you just don't, okay? You don't do anything, and the default. Now, there could be a question about that. You admit there could be a question as to how you handle defaults, right? But generally speaking, I mean, you could go in, and you could see where you could easily fill the card out quite intuitively, right? So I don't think the methodology of introducing this is so difficult. Um, figure skating champions... Um, Big Brother, uh, who's going to get voted off, uh, um, Strictly Come Dancing, or what have you. You know, I mean, each individual candidate, I mean, is an individual. They're on TV. You see them dance. You feel that, oh gosh, you know, she looked great, or he looked good, or you know, they worked really well together, or whatever. And you're sitting there ticking the scorecard in your head, yeah, or something like that. Yeah, I don't think I don't think we should be worried about it. What we get worried about is once we start talking about looking at all the statistics, you know, dragging up the runes of Deborda and you know the ghosts of these characters from the 13th century that underpin the method that we're actually using, and we don't think anything about that. We just take it like we're walking. Yes, we're 21, we can vote, or we're 18, we can vote. That's about it. We take it for granted. 
to change anything that we take so, so for granted is the difficult part. You know, and it's kind of unfortunate, but this is the process that it has to take because he's got to justify it. Watch it tomorrow. Come tomorrow. Because, in fact, um, I have a question at the front here who's dying to say something, but he's going to be there tomorrow, you know, waxing eloquent with everything he wants to say. So do come tomorrow at 6 o'clock for the Boxing Glove event. Okay? Thanks to our speaker.